Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Rorag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Welcome to Rorag. I'm your host, Tom Gubbins. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr Terry McCosker. Terry is the founder and director of Resource Consulting Services. He's an internationally acclaimed teacher and has worked in research, extension and property management in both government and private sector for 45 years. Welcome to the podcast, Terry. Thank you, Tom. Great to be involved. And uh, it's a beautiful, fine day here, probably uh, and and, uh, a little bit green outside, but um, beautiful weather at the moment. It's uh, one of the rules of podcasting, Terry, and I'll be doing it all the time as well, not to talk about the weather or the uh, or how green it is because the podcast may not go to air for a while and it may not be so green when it does, but um, I'm going to be doing the same thing I can tell all the way. We are farmers after all, aren't we? we that's, that's how we start our conversations. Um, Terry, we wanted to talk to you today about loving the land, um, which I know is a, a topic very close to your heart. You've spent a long, lot of your life working out ways of um, making the environment work much better with farmers and looking after the landscapes around us. Your work with uh, setting up and being the principal of rural consulting services. Terry, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the interaction between land and animal and the environment, how it all works? I think, Tom, I developed my love of the land from my mother who loved the land and, and I grew up on the land. And I know how we all, as farmers, can become very, very attached to our piece of land. And it's as though it becomes part of us. And it's almost, uh, I think, when you've lived on the land and and uh, worked at it, you can certainly understand the Aboriginal view of land and that it's... Um, is something that we're the custodian of for a short period of time. And then we've got to pass that on to future generations, preferably in better condition than we found it. And I think out of that has grown a much deeper understanding of where that connection comes from and what sort of connection we need. And one of the things that I have learned uh, over the last probably 10 or 15 years is that land itself, uh, as we do, has a consciousness. And that the very successful farmers are people who are actually connected uh, almost at an energetic or spiritual level to that land. In other words, you can read the land, you can feel it, you can read the plants, you read the animals and understand um What's going on? I remember a, a story that uh, Professor Stuart Hill used to tell about his grandfather and uh, when it was time to plant the potatoes and, you know, his grandfather would get out and walk around one morning and just sort of sniff the air and feel the soil and, and say, you know, it's time to plant potatoes, you know, and uh, he'd say to his grandfather, how do you know that? Grandfather, he'd say, it's time to plant potatoes. And I think as 
people get more and more connected to that environment and that land, we have the ability to understand and read more and more of what's going on around us and sense more of it. And I think, uh, you know, love's an interesting word. There's a lot of people who would love their land, but they don't actually treat it as though they love it. Uh, and I think we've got to treat it as though it is something that we love and treat it with respect and learn to work with Mother Nature instead of against her. And uh, my experience is in agriculture that the more we work with Mother Nature and the more we understand how she operates and how we can operate with her, the more profitable our business becomes, the more productive it comes uh, and the less inputs we've got to put into it. So it's actually a win-win once we learn to, to work with Mother Nature. Thank you, Terry. The, the, um I suppose um, something that comes from that, I've got a bit of a belief that farmers have a bit of trouble taking on science because of some of those complexities that you're talking about. Sometimes they clash, you know, um, it's time to grow the taters may clash with something that the Weather Bureau is telling them. So uh, I feel that adoption of science sometimes clashes with some of those really innate understandings of the land and makes it difficult for people to adopt science. And then rural urban divide develops a little bit from that have you got any thoughts about you know the conservative sort of nature of agriculture which you know i'm a part of as well i think what you just described there in that conflict between science and that understanding of the farm is the difference between reductionist science and holistic approach to management of land animals and plants a lot of our science is built around a reductionist approach. And what that means is that we can pull things apart and we can understand, you know, a, a vet, for example, can pull an animal apart and show you all the bits and, and you know, a good anatomist could point out all the nerves and how it all operates, etc. But that anatomist would not be able to determine find the move of the cow, for example, find the emotions of that cow, find its thoughts. So that cow is much more than the sum of its parts. And I think that when we get into reductionism, we, we go down rabbit holes. So we go down a rabbit hole of trying to control a particular weed, for example. And in fact, that weed may well be serving a purpose. Mother Nature's put it there for a reason. And so when we step back and look at things from a holistic and natural point of view, we start to say, well, why is that plant there and what role is it fulfilling? And it could be accumulating trace minerals for us. It could be uh, supplying those trace minerals to our animals. And sometimes, and you may well have observed this with your grazing management, is that when animals go into a paddock, they'll sometimes go and eat all the stuff that we would call weeds and then they'll settle down and eat the things we planted. And they're doing that for a reason because those weeds are actually what we call weeds are actually providing a service or an ecosystem service. And so the reductionist approach said, well, let's get rid of that. That's a plant that we class as a weed. But the holistic approach says, well, let's just stand back and think about why that's there and what it's doing and let's develop that understanding and work with that. And I think that's sometimes where the conflict comes between science and that deeper understanding that you have as a person who works the land and the animals. 
And sometimes um, the science actually has to come in after the farmers have proved things too. And you'd be well or truly aware of that, that someone has tried something that then a scientist has come and tried to understand. And, and I suppose that's happening at the moment with multiple species pastures, which you as the Tamania chairman have been pushing us towards, multi- making sure that we have more biodiversity in our pastures. And I suppose that's what you were pointing out a bit then. But there are bigger benefits in uh, having many species of pasture plants to bring in bugs and all sorts of things into the environment and ecosystem. Well, there's a lot of benefits and, and uh, not the least of which is production. Some really interesting research out of Germany now showing that for every species that you take out of a plant community, the, whole, the overall yield declines for every individual species. So, you know, the difference between having 15 and 25 in a plant community is significant in terms of the yield. It's also significant in terms of the services, the ecosystem services provided by that biodiversity. Uh, The ability of different plants to collect up different nutrients and provide those to your animals. You know, if you've got a soil, for example, that's zinc deficient, uh, and many Australian soils are, then you you might have plants, and they're often deep-rooted plants, that are there to accumulate zinc, and they will suck that zinc up until they've replenished the zinc around the surface of the soil and they no no longer have a purpose and they will move out and something else will come back in. Now, if they're doing that for the soil, then there's also an advantage in that for your livestock because they're able to eat a broader range of feed. And it's a little bit like you, Tom, if if I only ever fed you beautiful marble Tamania steak, for example... (laughs) And you didn't ever... I'm not looking too bad on it either, Terry. Yeah, <laughs> but if that's, if that's all you ever ate, even though that's a beautiful food, if that's all you ever ate, you would get bored with it. Um, and you'd probably get sick because you'd be missing some of the phytochemicals that you might have got out of the greens that you should have added with it. And I think this nutrition is a lot more than just nutrients, minerals, etc. It's also the phytochemicals. And there's hundreds of phytochemicals in different plants, and they're critical for our microbiomes, uh, for our health, whether we're talking ourselves or whether we're talking animals. So the more biodiversity we've got in a system, the healthier that system is going to be, and the more resilient it is to the sort of changes that can occur with seasons and all sorts of other things. Terry, the carbon cycle and uh, climate change has been obviously on the topic now for many years and um, ruminants are being or particularly beef cattle are being blamed for for releasing methane into the atmosphere at exhaustive rates but again when the carbon accounting's done land is split away from beef um, and so the two holistically cannot be be calculated in the same model. So we get positive land contribution to climate change, but we get negative beef contribution to climate change. But the two really, um, in most of Australia, are hand in hand. How important are grazing cattle on grazing lands for, for carbon sequestration and balance? That's a great question, Tom, and one that very few people understand. The short answer is they're very critical and uh, it's like a hand in a glove. There's nothing else can can digest the cellulose that's in plant material. 
Um, so ruminants, uh, you know, cattle, sheep, camels, goats, etc., are all ruminants. So they can digest that cellulose. Well, they, the animal themselves can't, but the bugs they have in their ruminants can break that down. The furfy about methane, and there's several of them, but it's accounted for in a linear fashion in the same way that you say, well, if a power station puts coal in one end and sends off CO2, it's emitting carbon. And it is. And that's a linear approach to carbon accounting. But when we're looking at livestock and soils and plants, for example, they're part of the carbon cycle. So that methane, the, the carbon molecules in that methane that that animal uh, is burping have come from somewhere. It's come out of the atmosphere into the plant material, into the rumen, where the bugs have converted a very small part of it into methane and it's then emitted. But while that animal is grazing, there are bugs in the soil that will actually consume a large percent of that methane. So to start with, when methane's measured in emissions from animals, it's normally done in an animal house with a confined space and an animal eating out of a trough um, and eating artificial food. And so that it's not breathing that methane onto the soil where the soil can actually deal with it. It's sort of like saying, well, geez, Mother Nature, you're a bit of an idiot. Why didn't you think of methane emissions? Well, I'd reckon Mother Nature thought of that so long ago that we haven't even caught up yet. And the second thing about methane is that it's part of a carbon cycle. And if we took all the grazing animals out of, uh, of Australia, for example, the carbon in those plants is still going to cycle. And a lot of it will still cycle as methane. Now, that methane will be emitted in a hot fire or it will be emitted by white ants and termites that actually consume that dead material because there's nothing else other than termites and fire that can consume cellulose. So that cellulose, so the carbon that's in cellulose, must cycle back to the atmosphere. Uh, and so we've got a number of things that are wrong with talking about animals and methane. So the, the accounting system itself is linear and that's wrong. We're not taking account of the methanotrophs in the soil that can absorb methane. And we're not taking account of the fact that it is a cycle and it, that the half-life of methane is very short in the atmosphere compared to CO2. So the whole lot of problems wrong with the, with the methane story in livestock. So, Terry, when we start managing animals differently to traditional methods where, where perhaps there aren't enough water points and things like that uh, in Australia and we give animals an opportunity to spread out and graze paddocks in more intensively in a mob and move on, what effects does that have on plant and soil and, and this carbon cycle. So there's, there are varying, I suppose a little bit like um, pollution can be, or carbon emission can be blamed on transport system, but that varies from people that ride a bike to work to drive a car or go by, by aeroplane. Some forms of transport are all right and some aren't. And again, in raising beef cattle, there are some f ways of raising beef cattle that may be l less environmentally advantageous and some that are more so grazing grass correctly um, i know is a very important point of yours and something that you hold dearly can you explain a little bit more about that 
Yeah, so uh, if you look at the way animals graze naturally and the way to see that is look at what the big herds in Africa do, what the big buffalo herds in, in, the, in the United States did before settlement there, uh, they work in, tend to work in big mobs and they keep moving. Uh, and so if we want to graze effectively, uh, then we need to emulate what those animals are doing. Uh, and the system that I introduced to Australia now uh, a little over 30 years ago is cell grazing, where we move animals based on the growth rate of the plant. So if, the, if your plants are growing quickly, then you move animals quickly. In other words, you have a shorter rest period. And once you hit winter or dry summers, etc., then you're going into a period where your growth rate slows or stops, and therefore you need a longer rest period, and that gives you a longer graze period. And so your rotation slows down. So you're continually adjusting the rate at which you're moving your animals based on the growth rate of the plant, which determines the rest that those plants require. Often to be able to do that, then we've got to water landscapes better and shorten up the distance that animals walk to feed. And we want to distribute those animals over our paddocks evenly. And once you get the right sort of density in that grazing system, animals graze top down. So they start at the top of the plant and graze down. And a, a well-grazed paddock looks like a mower has been over the top of it. Whereas when you look at most grazing systems and, and particularly a continuous grazing system, and you look at where the heads of the animals are, they're on the ground. They're not grazing off the top of the plants. They're grazing around the base of the plants and they're looking for the short plants close to the ground. So that continuous grazing then damages plants because animals then come back and rebite the same plants on a regular basis. And that eventually will destroy the ice cream plants in your pasture system. And so we get this gradual decline from good quality plants to poor quality plants. And our response in lots of Australia is to go and plough out the poor quality plants, replant better ones, and then start the same decline again. And this idea of having to replant permanent pastures is, it makes no sense to me. Replanting and permanent in the same sentence don't belong there. Uh, and so if we graze our plants effectively according to what the plants need, then our plants are going to stay there for a long time. But the other thing that happens is when we're looking after the plant like that, two things happen in terms of the carbon cycle. The first is that methane is reduced by about 22 to 24% when animals are being grazed in a cell system compared to continuous grazing. And the second thing that happens is because we're looking after our grass plants and allowing them to not to be grazed down too low and to continue to be bitten and regrowing, bitten and regrowing, what that's doing is pumping carbon into the soil. And we're also able to extend the photosynthesis period by looking after those plants. So we pump carbon into the soil through the root system, but our biggest pump of carbon into the soil is what's called the liquid carbon pathway, which is a, a grass plant, for example, when it's uh, photosynthesizing, will take about 40 to 50% of that carbon that's, that it takes in and creates through photosynthesis, those sugars, they'll take those sugars and put them out through the root zone into the soil. 
And that amount of carbon is up to five and six times more important than the actual carbon stored in roots. Uh, so we can sequester carbon in soils in very large quantities. You know, in round figures, there's, uh, there's more carbon in the top metre of soils than there is in the entire atmosphere and the entire vegetation on Earth. And so taking our uh, anthropogenic emissions of about, say, 10 or 11 gigatons of carbon a year, and putting them away in around about 1,580 gigaton storage in soils is a pretty easy ask. So agriculture and grazing in particular uh, is a solution to climate change. It's a solution and it not only is a solution, you can actually draw some of that um, excess carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, store it in soils where we also then store more water, where we also then cycle nutrients in a more effective way, plants that we produce off those is then healthier. We're getting to the end of our, our time, Terry, and uh, so thank you very, very much for coming on to RORAG and very important that you get your lifetime of knowledge out there and into urban and rural people's information because uh, you've got so much knowledge. Before we leave, though, Terry, we've got the three M's, um, which is mistakes, masterpieces and mentors. What are the mistakes you've made, Terry? I made a lot of mistakes and I made some big ones and it's interesting that you ask because I've just analysed recently my mistakes and my successes and what I found is that all the mistakes I've made all had the same characteristics and that was due to I had no real vision for what I was wanting to do. I didn't necessarily have the skills to do what I wanted to do. I had no real passion for it often didn't have the capital for it and it often didn't line up with my values and the thing that drove most of those mistakes was me trying to earn money um, and money is not one of my values which I finally realised when I looked at my successes in life um, I found that it was the complete opposite that every time I've been very successful in what I've achieved there was enormous passion. There was very clear vision and goals for what I wanted to achieve. Um, the, what I was wanting to do lined up with my values. Um, and what um, Simon Sinek classes as advancing a just cause. And so all my successes involved advancing a just cause. Um, and um, the capital and the money wasn't important because when you're actually doing something that is working towards a just cause, um, I have found that without focusing on it, the cash will actually flow. Uh, and in terms of mentors, I've had a lot of great mentors in my life. And probably one of the most significant was a guy called Cliff Emerson, um, who was a Texan. And he gave me my first job outside the public servants and that was on a cattle station in the Northern Territory and I spent seven years on that property and initially under his guidance um, established probably the largest and only holistic 
approach to research in the cattle industry in Australia. And uh, I was basically given 300,000 acres, 12,000 head of cattle um, and unlimited resources and said, fix the problems. And there were lots of them. Uh, and we fixed everything we set out to fix and a lot more problems we didn't even know were there. Um, so he was, and he was a mentor in many, many ways. He also introduced me to Stan Parsons, who introduced me to holistic thinking. Um, and, uh, and I think we are eventually the sum of the people in our lives, um, you know, starting with our parents who give us our basic belief systems and, and values. And then through life, it's the key people that we meet um, that create pivotal moments for us and pivotal ways of our thinking and that guides us through life. And I've had a lot of great mentors and still do have a lot of great mentors. Thank you, Terry. It's pretty important to choose the right ones too, I suppose, as you go through life, isn't it? You, there's some mentors that perhaps you shouldn't choose as well. Thank you very much. Perhaps we look forward to getting you back on a podcast again one day in the future. And It's been a wonderful chat and uh, we look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks, Terry. Thank you very much, Tom, and all the best with the podcast. 